Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, Cody Townsend and I are back to review the news, and we're sorry that we're just a little bit late on this one today. Cody has been traveling. We talk about that near the end of this episode, and as you'll hear me say, I think that warrants its own 50 Project episode. But anyway, so we are a little late, but we have a fantastic conversation for you here today. Today we are going to be celebrating some things and mourning and fighting and laughing and trying to think hard about a number of important issues, you know, including mountain sex. Anyway, this episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by our Blister Recommended Shop, AMH. Since 1974, Alaska mountaineering and hiking has been supporting adventures in the Alaskan backcountry by offering a curated selection of products and employing deeply knowledgeable and experienced staff. Located in Anchorage, Alaska, AMH carries backcountry, alpine, and entry-level to high-end competitive race Nordic gear, as well as gear for climbing, pack rafting, camping, hiking, running, and skimo. AMH offers year-round binding mounts, edge sharpening, waxing, and repair services for both Nordic and downhill skis. They also have multiple MasterFit certified boot fitters on staff capable of molding, punching, grinding, or shimming away any fit issues you have. But that's not all, folks. They also make custom insoles and include any fitting needed, within reason, when you purchase a new boot from them. By the way, just as an aside, I'm pretty sure they talk about quote-unquote within reason just in case you happen to have godforsaken feet like Luke Kappa. Anyway, you can check out AMH online at alaskamountaineering.com. And when you're in Anchorage, you should definitely stop by the AMH shop and tell them our blister crew says hi. And now let's go ahead and review the news with Cody Townsend. Here we go. All right, well, Cody... Good to have you back on reviewing the news, but we need to start today with some big news, and that is um, that we lost Hillary Nelson. And I wanted to just hear you talk a bit about what she has done and what she has meant in the ski community. Yeah, this one was a this is a hard one for sure. Um, we got the news this last week. Um, you know, we'd heard initially that she was missing up on um, Manislau. And generally, knowing the way these things work, um, I tend to find when people of that caliber are missing that it's usually the worst of news. Um, and it ended up being that. And it definitely hurts for a lot of different reasons. Um you know, I mainly hurt for her family, her two sons, um, 
uh, for a community for Jim, Jim Morrison, who's been her uh, partner, both in the mountains and in everyday life for the last, oh, it's probably to be like six, seven years now. They were in many ways inseparable. But I also kind of just heard in general, just because of what she meant to the sport. To me, like before I even started kind of being a ski mountaineer or hiking for my own lines, I was still super focused on free ride skiing. And I just remember seeing little things about this woman um, back then named as Hillary O'Neill and these badass accomplishments around the world, whether it was in Morocco and the Atlas Mountains, whether that was in the Himalaya. And I just kept seeing them like, wow this woman is a complete and utter badass. Like I have no idea about the sport, but she's obviously one of the best because she's doing things that guys aren't doing. As I got to know her and start to understand kind of her impact, I, you know, quickly realized like she did not need a qualifier in front of her name. She did, uh, it did not need to be gendered. She was one of the greatest ski mountaineers in the world and of all time. It didn't not the greatest female. She was just one of the greatest. And, you know, like, I think he, that's been reflected in the last few days of seeing the tributes that have come out to her from so many people, um, from all walks of life, um, from people that never met her, um, to uh, people that had spent five minutes with her. Um, she had an air and aura about her. Um, she was kind of, she had a superhero air to her. Like we would get around her and I like, I kinda, I, it's hard to get starstruck. And I kinda always felt starstruck around her. There was this aura about her that you're just like, she's a superhero. But she was so just kind of humble and self-deprecating and just very down to earth and everything she did. She did not wear uh, that on her sleeve. Like you could just see it in the way she was kind of like shaped and the way she was weathered that she'd had massive experience in the mountains. But when you talk to her, it wasn't like talking like kind of like guys talk of just like, yeah, I was up on here and I was up there and I skied this mountain. It was like about every other aspect of life. You would end up having conversations with her and she was just, she was a great, she was one of the great ones and it sucks to have lost her. You know, it's, I don't know why in the last few years, but I got more worried about her than almost anybody just because it was like, she meant so much to so many people. And this one, it, it sucks. It sucks that we lost her. There's been a ton mentioned and very appropriately about Jim and about her kids. I think it has been fitting that it, it is the reports and the outpouring from the community. There is definitely not simply been the acknowledgement that she is an all-timer. And I don't know, this always gets us back to the question of risks and rewards and motivations and the like. And I do think that I, I do not find those conversations tired. I think that any of us who are spending time in mountains need to constantly, we've talked about this, constantly reevaluate why we're doing what we're doing, the risks that we're willing to take and the like. Any new thoughts on your side about that kind of calculus? I will say that when I heard the the news. It, yeah, personally, it makes you question things. It it brings back the reality of the situation, full front and center. And then I sit there and you're like, okay, how how do I plan my life um, and my job and what I do, not just for a job, but what makes me me and the thing I love. Uh, 
yet still care for my family. And I know for a fact, Hillary had all those thoughts as well. Like I saw her operate in the mountains multiple times and she would do amazing stuff, but she was also very calculated and quite cautious. Um, I've, you know, I remember when we were skiing the Patriarch line together in Montana and this upper section of it is really steep and we had really bad snow and I kind of feeling because I'd heard some like, oh, you got to ski it from the top. I was like, all right, I'm going to make some turns on this upper section. And I went for it. And she right away was like, looked at Jim and just like, let's take out the rope. This is stupid. <laughs> and after they watched me skitter down for a couple steps and then start sidestepping down, she did not take additional risks because her goal, I know, was to come home, to come home to her family. Um, and that's why this one kind of hits you because you know this is just part of the calculus sometimes of the mountains. And it's the thing I'm most afraid of is just that. It just can happen at any moment, even when you're trying to calculate everything down to the the tiniest degree that you will not make a mistake that will end up being fatal. So to me, like there's nothing to fault her on. Um, you can point to and being like, oh, that's, you know, shouldn't have been doing that or something. It's just the mountain sometimes. So when we get into this larger conversation about risk of just even being there in the first place, which we, we saw a bit of that. I saw the comments in my feed and other people's feed. I would say there definitely is a bit of gender bias when it comes to it, um, being a mother versus being a father, um, being the, the comments definitely just had a bit of a harsher tone when they did come in a negative way of taking too much risk with a family at home. Um, what I say to that is can be you know, a lot of stuff that's in the gray area, a lot of stuff where we try and be calculated, we can try and do this, this is our life this is what we do. But ultimately, like, it's hard to step foot in someone like that's brain without having done it yourself. Um, I think in every walk of life, and no matter what sport it is, there's this like criticism that comes along athletes pretty heavily. And I was weighing this recently of how on one side of the equation, we want our athletes in society, whether they're NBA players, football players, anything to be great. We want them to do fantastic feats of strength and endurance and athletic ability. Um, and then even for the mountains with exposure to fear and risk, we want them to be like that. But then we also want them to be humble. We want them to be just like us. We want them to take the exact same risk quotient that we would in life. And those two things are at such odds with each other. You cannot be an elite athlete at the top of the world while also being just like you. These people, whether it's a Hillary, whether it's an NBA player, whether it's a professional football player are wired differently. And that's why it's really hard to have critique on their choices sometimes, because ultimately I think it takes a different person to be an elite athlete. You are just either born different or you are raised different, or then you are just kind of put into this life that you are a part of. And those risks, like we know them as good as anybody. We know them more than anybody. 
There are times when you might lie to yourself, and that's the most dangerous aspect is when you're lying to yourself about the risks. But people like Hillary, who were doing fantastic feats in the mountains for 20 plus years, they weren't lying to themselves. She knew exactly the risks that she was taking. And unfortunately, what happened happened. And I can't criticize her for the decisions to be in there because that's who she was. That's why she was great. That is exactly why she revered her. I also see the pain that it leaves behind. I've been witness to it. I've seen kids grow up fatherless in my area and it's, it fucking sucks. That's, there's no way around it. Um, but ultimately like it's really hard. Like the thing We'd always talk about with Shane um, as a poignant example of this is like, can you imagine Shane not doing any of what he did? And like the the metaphor that everyone puts out here locally is it'd be like caging an eagle. You know, you're just not, he was not supposed to be a normal person. He was supposed to be who he was. What he left behind, it, it's sad. Is it worth it? Probably not. But it's just the reality of, the sports we do, the the lives we lead, and the choices we make, and it's I, I it can there can be two things that are true at once: that it sucks, it's sad, it's not worth it. But then these are also people who are defined by their feats and their risk taking and their mountain, the what they do in the mountains, and that's what makes them good people and has left positive impacts on their community, on their family forever. So it's uh, it's one that I don't think we're ever going to have a clean answer to. Um, and I think risk is highly individualized and highly personalized. And I don't think there should be a blanket analysis for it. I have my risk tolerances and a lot of people have different risk tolerances. I have my opinions on what I think is risky and what I don't think is risky. And that may be vastly different than my peers and then the larger public. So ultimately i just come back to the fact that like yes it can be true of two things that she was a great she left the world in a better place it is also fucking sad and it also sucks and it sucks for her family she will certainly be missed yeah definitely i'll miss her um i'm really stoked i had some experience in the mountains with her um i will never forget being at 14 camp on denali I had been texting with them, uh, with Jim and her, giving them weather updates. We were at 14 camp. They were climbing the Cassine Ridge, which is just a, you know, it's a five, nine, 8,000 foot alpine climb. And they didn't bring skis. And like we get down, they're walking down to 14 camp and we're running out of camp trying to meet them on the trail. And we're delivering like bacon and whiskey and <laughs> Pringles. And they're just looking exhausted. And I'll never forget like, Hillary looked like a goddess coming off the top of the mountain. And I was just like, absolutely like, oh my God, like this woman is just like, it like, yeah, like mythological goddess who had just like done this amazing feat. And the first thing she says to, she's like, I'm never fucking walking down without skis again. (laughs) She was just so pissed off that she had to walk down from the summit after they had skied the Mesner Kular uh, a week before I did, um, before we showed up. And I'll definitely cherish those memories. I think everyone that was around her for a little bit will cherish those memories. And that's a, that's a bummer that she's gone. Hmm. Next up. Yeah. Hard one to move on from, but 
Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> Other big news in our outdoor industry, Yvonne Chouinard gives away the company he founded, Patagonia. We actually published, I'm really proud of this actually, we recently started this open mic series, right? And the whole idea is kind of, we're not telling people what to say. We're reaching out to people and they come back with what they want to share. And we actually published Chenard's letter that he wrote explaining why he and his family did what they did. And people don't give away multi-billion dollar companies. Like that's so contrarian to how we think about companies and business, you know, and the like. So there is that. And people can read that letter uh, as part of our open mic series. And I'm just proud to have his statement and his words in the thing that we're doing where we just say, you know, we want people to say what they have to say and, and do what they have to do or feel compelled to do. So there is actually maybe only one similar thing, which I want to talk a little bit about. I think we are going to talk about it. It's not actually that similar. And people can read Chenard's word. There's also an outstanding article in the New York Times that really goes in the details about this uh, transfer of ownership and the rest. But I think this is really significant. It is virtually unprecedented. And the long and short for people who are unfamiliar is that going forward indefinitely, profits from Patagonia are going to be going to uh, what's called the Holdfast Collective, which is a trust that will be distributing Patagonia's profits, and these will largely go toward nature-based climate solutions, such as preserving wild lands. Uh, they will also be able to fund grassroots activism and can also lobby and donate to political campaigns. So that's a bit of what we're seeing. But again, uh, this is not what normally happens with founders of multi-billion dollar companies. So again, I, I, I want to highlight the contrarian nature of this. And I do actually think, in my view, this is an example of an individual and a family who have a company, they have talked a huge game about environmental stewardship. And to me, this is an example of truly putting your money where your mouth is. Totally agree with you. And there is many factors that make this such big news. Um, I think the greatest of which is just how contrarian this is to every other billionaire out there. Like it reminds me of uh, in the Jobs book. I remember there was this anecdote about Larry Ellison kind of being uh, Steve Jobs looking to him was like, why do you want more money? And he's like, well, that's we that's what I do. I uh -huh. get more money. Yeah. And he just like you just wants more and more. And we have built a society and and an economic system that is just kind of a hoarding of wealth. And I created that. Therefore, it is my wealth. Um, and we see that We, I mean, I think that's some of the criticisms that we see of of people like Jeff Bezos. And, you know, he has billions of billions of dollars and he's building dick rockets to go to Mars. 
that rocket was really shaped like a dick, by the way. <laughs> um, but, and then you see many other billionaires doing the same thing. It's just kind of a collection of wealth. So I think that signifier of just like, no, I am not inheriting this company and taking all my uh, value into it and putting it into my bank account and my children's bank account, we are shifting this over for one mission statement, which is to pretty much save the planet, as they put it, um, specifically to climate change initiatives. Um, it's very contrarian. And it's really, it's really cool. But at the same time, when I see such like collective just joy for something, when I see such messaging that is all this is all good, I always try and find the hole to it. And there is a little hole to this. And I would say the New York Times did bring this up and it's not exactly the same thing. So um, Barry Seed or Bear Seed, I don't know exactly how to say his name. They did a lot of people in this article, they uh, about him. They don't even know how to pronounce his name. He was a um, owner of this company, electronics company out of Chicago called Triplight. And he did a very similar thing of essentially transferring the wealth of his company to a nonprofit, which then saved him hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes. And then he gave the largest single private donation um, to a political group being $1.65 billion to the Federalist Society, um, which the Federalist Society was a chief architect in overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, Sarah Barry Seed has also funded Islamophobic films and funded heavy anti-climate science. So there's two things to look at. This is like one, did, is are we just back to neutral status quo? We're just kind of canceling each other out with billionaires giving a lot of their wealth to opposing things. Um, but the whole to it to me is like in this way is like, are we happy with this system? Are we happy with the fact that billionaires have an outsized influence on the direction of this planet? Should we have a say in this? Like Yvonne obviously built Patagonia and with a mission statement that was for the benefit of the community, the benefit of the earth. This action is in that name. Same time, Barry Seed probably is thinking he's doing the same thing, but along his values and along his name. So are we happy with that system where billions and billions of dollars that we don't have a vote in, that we have a say in, are being accumulated? And then it's up to the goodness of their heart or the individual's personal values to have an outsized influence on society. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> this gets into questions of, right? big government versus little government. How much Sorry. do you trust the government to collect our money and make the wisest and best decisions for an entire country or let's say, you know, all of humanity. And so there is that. And um, I think for very understandable reasons, people can and do fall along different uh, ends of that spectrum in that debate. At some more fundamental level, I still like the notion that America is supposed to be about individual freedom. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, so if some other dude did something and donated somewhere, but this family made this move. And and I and I do want to hang on this just to, for a sec. You know, understandably, we are all talking about Yvonne gave away his company. But honestly, if there's real heroes in this story or additional heroes, we really need to talk about Yvonne's children, Fletcher and Claire. 
because Cody, I don't know about you, but if <laughs> my dad owned a multi-billion dollar company and he was like, you know, hey, kids want the company, like who actually is making sort of the bigger sacrifice here or the stronger statement? Yeah. Um, I, I just think that's like, <laughs> so you'd be, you'd be cousin Greg saying my <laughs> grandpa gave my inheritance to Greenpeace is uh-huh. what you're saying. Yeah. I yeah. mean, uh, I unless, mean, unless you're in the very rarefied group of people that have been in that situation, let's not gloss over. <laughs> totally. Uh, Fletcher and Claire saying, uh, they didn't want to be in this position. They didn't want to be the owners. And so again, um, I want to celebrate this for a number of reasons, but we are in a capitalist society. We are in a society that it is kind of all about more. It's about more like, well, why more? Shut up. It's just accumulate more. And I think that this isn't merely about Yvonne. It is about Yvonne and the children uh, and the family. And I just think this is a really significant e- example. And I hope it, among other things, reminds us that it if if you are confused and think that whoever ends up with their most money in their bank account kind of wins, yeah. this is a hell of a reminder from people. It's one thing to talk about it, but when that money is kind of in front of you, to then still do a move like this, that is a different thing. And I'm going to applaud that. I agree. And I I generally, I, I pretty much am like 95% applaud this move. And I think when I would almost push back on my last little poking holes in this, yeah. as much as we want to vote in it, and then we're getting government involved or whatever, the public praise for Yvonne's decision is a form of voting and is a form of showing it. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the takeaways from a book called Billionaire's Wilderness, which was about Jackson Hole, was talking about how many billionaires just want to be liked and want to be like normal people. They're such they're such on the mountains by themselves at the top that they almost feel like that they they try and uh, like normalize themselves. So the fact that Yvonne was so celebrated for this, I think is really good signifier to a lot of other extremely wealthy people that like, hey, give your money away for things that a majority of people would vote for. Like majority of people in America want something to be done about climate change. And that's where you push back on the bear seed thing is like a majority of people in America were supportive of Roe versus Wade. And he's funding societies, the Federalist Society, which pushes back against that. So, you know, ultimately, public praise is a form of kind of voting for it. And that's why we should celebrate this and celebrate Yvonne. Um, Going back into it of voting with your dollar is becoming one of the most powerful things you can do, in my opinion. Uh, And so it is checking behind the screens and seeing who is running that company, what are their values, buying products and services from companies you value with ownership that you value is an important thing. I think in this day and age, um, especially when, you know, in many ways, our government is completely inept in getting anything done. Mm-hmm. Um, it's impossible to argue against that, considering what you've looked at our Congress for the last 20 years of actually getting landmark legislation done with, um, you know, so 
the way you're going to vote is like, hey, well, I'm going to give money to Patagonia because I know that that money is going to be then turned around. I get the puffy jacket I want, but then I also know the surplus value is going to be going into funding politicians I would vote for, um, funding grassroots activists that I would love to work with and funding causes that I believe in. So I think it's, you know, ultimately it is something to be very celebrated. Um, uh, I found it also interesting, though, too. It almost is like business not changing because this was Patagonia's mission statement before. He's yep. just ensuring that the yep. generations, the succession of this goes smoothly. Because if you went public, I, that's the most interesting thing. If he goes public, then they're legally bound to make a profit. That's and right. all of a sudden, shareholders, I don't know, some public, some private equity firm could buy yep. a giant chunk of them at public have, and then all of a sudden say like, nope you are going to be a screw sustainable down and sustainable manufacturing and giving to that. No, we're taking that money and funding our debt that we're servicing or whatever. So um, ultimately, I do think this is a really positive thing. Um, sometimes I still question the system of that yeah. much surplus value um, being acquired and then not having a say in it. But we do have a say in it by celebrating it. All right. Next topic. I want to continue the celebration, even though Seems like you want to be cranky about this one. Kipchoge sets another new marathon world record. The performances that Kipchoge has been stringing along. <laughs> it's just like, well, it's like another weekend, wake up, read that he just broke the world record again type of thing. And so to me, uh, this got me thinking his level of just continued dominance and continued literally world historical performance is this the like most impressive thing and the most elite thing currently happening in the broader world of outdoor sports because i like to kind of take stock of some of these things sometimes like where are we right and is it we talk a lot about the world of ski mountaineering, or we're talking about incredible mountain bike feats or whatever, or climbing feats. But I'm like, what Kipchoge is doing in the marathon? Does he kind of hold the belt at the moment among mm. the kind of broader world of athletics? So I have two things to say about this because I'll get to my cranky point right <laughs> after it. But I will first say the one person I don't think we celebrate quite enough is Killian Jornet. Uh -huh. Like, you look at what he's done over the length of time that he's done it in multi-different disciplines, both in mountain marathons and hunter milers like the UTMB, and the level that it takes to do what he's done in varying courses, varying altitudes, completely different mindsets, like having strategies and how dominant he has been for so long. Like we've not seen that in ultra running of his dominance. And like with Kachogi, like, yes, he's obviously like you look at the stats and the mile <laughs> numbers he's running and you're just like, wow, I wish I could run a mile that fast. <laughs> right. Not 26 of them, but just one. I've like, I could run one, I'd be happy. Um, so the, I, I just want to bring up, like, we need to evaluate Killian. And I think experts in that world need to like talk about him more because what he's done in an incredibly difficult sport is one of the greatest athletic feats of all time. But then also just in the general. So you wanted to frame this as like one of the, you know, is this the 
most impressive thing in the world. And yeah. I'm like, why are we so worried about goats? Like goat culture has gone way too far. Like I was young enough to remember when you called someone a goat, it was because they fucked up. Like, you know, right. uh, Bill right. Buckner going the, getting the leg, yeah. the uh, ball through his legs. They were a goat. They were yeah. the person that like screwed the game up. Now goat is stands for the greatest of all time. And I just look at it our analysis of athletes in society. Like we went as an American culture that is so obsessed with winning, um, you know, compared to like so many other cultures, like Americans, like you're just not happy with, with second place. You're just not at all. And we're just like, first place only and like compare that with like formula one and what the netflix series has taught everyone to love is like oh they got third place good job which is much more in a, like a european culture of sport like they're not worried about winning quite as much as american culture is but now we're going to not it doesn't winning matter are you the greatest of all time and where i have felt like it officially jumped the shark was this last Sunday night. <laughs> Watching Sunday night football, they introduced Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady as two goats. Nope, you can't do that. There's not two goats. The goat by its nature is greatest of all time. It's not two of them. Um, and I just like, I'm getting like obsessed with this like obsession with goat culture because like we're obsessed with the athletes right now. And it's more of a reflection of ourselves thinking like we are witnessing the greatest of all time. But ultimately, like we forget generations of athletes like like I bring up like Jim Thorpe, um, you know, he's obviously known as one of the greater athletes of all time. But like what he did in his time being a professional football player, a professional baseball player, a professional basketball player and the first ever American gold medalist also in two different disciplines at that, like we're not talking about him like why is tom brady the goat and jim thorpe is not like there's this unbelievable tale i don't know if you read about it but it, it's in the 1920s i want to say um where there was a native american football team that had an exhibition game against the the new york giants who had just won the equivalent of the super bowl at that time and the native american football team with jim thorpe beat the giants <laughs> So like, are you saying like, so I, I just, this obsession with goat, I think has just gone too far. We're so like, it's more a reflection of ourselves, of us wanting to watch the greatest of all time and dictate what we saw with our own eyes as the greatest of all time. When that argument is really in many ways impossible, um, especially when it comes to uh, more sports like skiing and other sports where it's just more about a personal opinion. Um, and even at that, you can get into personal opinion. You can say Tom Brady is the GOAT because he won seven Super Bowls. But you can also say, you're like, well, I don't know. Peyton Manning played the position better than Tom Brady has. And so then you just, it's just argument fodder that I'm getting a little tired of. So, so I don't know. So if Kipchoge is a GOAT, sure. Great. I To be clear, I did not use the term GOAT no. You just went down your cranky goat tirade thing, unprompted yep. by me. Yep. Um, you are right that like we do need to like there still needs to be one, not like look at these yeah. goats together. <laughs> totally, <laughs> it's like we're just making category mistakes now. Like you can't say LeBron and Michael Jordan are no. the goats. You no. just can't. You it's like can't. saying like I mean I get cranky about weird weird stuff like 110% drives me crazy you're like you <laughs> just you can't be 110% um, and science has shown that if you give 95% effort you tend to be more successful than if you give 100% effort so just 
give 95% effort, not 110. I think listeners to reviewing the news can tell that I'm the one on this program given 110%. Just carrying you up to the top every every month. Every month. Every month. Yes, yes. Um, All right. Where are we going next? Uh, So this was a pretty funny story that I wanted to bring up. So a lot of different uh, um, outlets covered it, but up in Southeast Alaska, all these Yeti coolers are washing up on Alaskan beaches. And Alaskans, being the state with the most airplanes, are flying all over the coast and landing on beaches and picking up, like, tons of Yeti coolers, which would be, obviously, thousands and thousands of dollars of Yeti coolers and taking pictures of with them on stranded on beaches. So <laughs> I got to ask, is this the greatest marketing stunt of all time? Did, did Yeti tip a boat over so that people could go find them and see how long they survive? I only say that, um, you know, because Yeti's been doing some advertising with um, showing like Yeti's still filled with ice after the house burns down huh. or after their boat burns down huh. and whatnot. So it's like they're not meant to do this, but they can do this. Uh-huh. So I was wondering, I'm like, if my conspiracy eyes are up. Is this is do they tip a boat over and they're making this amazing scavenger hunt and someone 20 years is going to find a Yeti cooler that's in perfect shape? Um, I'm going to go with no. They did not yeah. do that intentionally. I know. I agree. But if they did it's pretty good like somebody yeah. somebody in the marketing department should get a raise yeah totally i know i'm pretty tight with the vp of marketing so okay. i should just text <laughs> you just him. ask yeah <laughs> just you ask him just do that yeah, now totally. yeah full disclosure i am sponsored by yeti if people don't know so i'm i'm not gonna like i, I probably wouldn't say like they're actually doing this but yeah. maybe i'll text him and maybe i can get the real world but then i would not be able to share it on a public forum like this Okay. Well, you can just text me and then okay. we'll just go go along our way. Anyway, here's just hoping that Alaskans in need of a cooler just hop in their puddle jumper and go find one in, in the ocean. Yeah, totally. Yeah, if you want we're rooting for you. Cooler, we're, we're, totally. rooting, we're rooting for you. Spend thousands of dollars in gas flying around in airplanes <laughs> to find a Yeti cooler. <laughs> All right. Moving on from our dumbest uh, topic of uh, hopefully our dumbest of this episode. Maybe not, though, because I guess we're headed to Canadian news. What's the most Canadian news story you have for us? So the most Canadian news story was that Tessa Conway on TikTok went viral recently, this last month, um, complaining about how non-Canadians, meaning Americans, don't really know enough about the true North. And all I wanted to say is, Tessa, (laughs) we here at the Reviewing the News Podcast, I've got your back. We're talking about pigloos. We're talking about beavers cutting power lines. Like we are educating our American following about Canada. So that's it. Um, I would say majority of Canadians realize that Americans do know nothing about Canada. Um, and they're generally fine with it because they're a very humble people mm. and very nice and they don't care. They just are like, yeah, uh, the crackheads downstairs are a little crazy. We'll just mind our own business up here. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, man, I said a minute ago we were done with our dumbest story. And now I think we're just entering into a trifecta of stupidity. But um, maybe not. I hope that's not too offensive to anyone, given that we are now about to talk about donkey racers, (laughs) a.k.a. burrow racers. There's a story in the Colorado Sun 
about this. It's definitely worth a read. I was laughing a lot. Do you have anything to say about burrow racing, Cody? Um, other than like, I really like dumb sports like this. Yeah. Like it makes me miss the original X Games. Like that's like, you remember the original X Games when they had super modified shovel racing (laughs) and they had street losers, which was the best way because they were a bunch of losers going down the street. Yeah. Um, They had the rollerblade racing. They had rock climbing. Oh, the skydive dancing, the skydive snowboarding or whatever they had. Like I love dumb sports and like they, you know, every year ESPN, the Ocho, does like an ESPN the Ocho with all those dumb sports. I wish that was full time because I want to see what burrow racing is like in real life. Like this story does make it seem like it'd be pretty hilarious <laughs> and filled with absolute suffering. And yeah. I want to see that happen. So ESPN the Ocho needs to cover burrow racing in Colorado. Do you think maybe after you hang up the 50 project, like maybe burrow racing could be the next the next phase, no, the next I think chapter super modified in your life. Shovel, super modified shovel racing <laughs> is in my future. <laughs> I think that. <laughs> All right. I was hoping we could get some breaking news uh, on reviewing the news about your next chapter and that it would involve donkey racing. But um, I, just, I think it's got to be, I. so I don't have much experience with donkeys. I don't <laughs> live on a farm or whatnot, but I do have a little bit of experience, which is funny. Uh, so I frequently go down to Baja for a surf trip with my wife and it's our like one vacation and whatnot. And we go down to the East Cape um, outside of uh, uh, San Jose del Cabo and go surf up the East Cape. And there's donkeys all over. They're like out in the desert and they come down to the beaches and they're trying to steal your food and they're very nosy. And the one thing about them is that rings true is they are stubborn. Like you can go and slap them on the ass as hard as possible and they will not move an inch if they know you've got an apple in your cooler and they can sniff it out. So I am very impressed at the difficulty of getting a donkey to move anywhere. Like that has got to be, that's where I think this would be really comical is like you just get to the bottom of a hill and a donkey's like, I am no, not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're done and there's nothing you can do. So they are as stubborn of creatures as it gets. You know, it's a great point. It really makes me rethink our conversation about Kipchoge. I mean, screw Kipchoge. (laughs) I think all the donkey racers out there are the real goats. Yeah. They're, they're, they're like literal goats, maybe. We, we, now that's where the next thing, goat racing. Right? We need goat racing to say who's the goat of goat racing. There go. All right. Uh, it is now time for Mountain Town Advice. Um, we've got two this week that I want to discuss. First one in. This is really good. Uh, I'm, I'm going to read this in full. This was submitted by Ryan Geiger. And he says, hi, my name is Ryan, and I'm writing in to ask a question for the Mountain Town Advice segment. Uh, my question is as follows. In your opinion, what are the criteria for a town slash population center to be considered a mountain town? I live in Bozeman, Montana, and am originally from the sur- suburbs of Denver. And obviously, Denver is a city but it has lots of avid skiers and outdoorsy folks, and it's in relatively close proximity to the mountains. Salt Lake City is similar, but even closer to the mountains. 
But here in Bozeman, it's all kind of the same, but with a smaller population. What role does proximity to mountains and population play into a place being called a mountain town? Because I, Ryan Geiger, would consider Bozeman a mountain town, but not really Salt Lake City or Denver. 37,000 people just got super mad about that comment from Ryan. Where is the line drawn, Cody? Is the answer more complex than just a town with mountains? This might be a dumb question. No worries. We're just kind of on a dumb streak right now. This might be a dumb question, but I feel like it's somewhat interesting. I love the podcast. Keep up the great work. It's a tough question. It is. It's really hard because, and I think Bozeman is the gray area line. Because Mm. it's a good one to try and draw a line through and I can see it going on either side of it. So to me, like I would personally define a mountain town that pretty much is based their economy, community and culture entirely around the mountains. So mountain towns being like Crested Butte is a mountain town. If there was not mountains, nobody would go there. They go there for the mountains. Like they go there because that that is what drives the economy, tourism, the the ski area, Crested Butte, the backcountry, the mountain biking, whatever it is, the mountains are the attraction and their economy, community, and culture revolve around those mountains. So to me, it's like, if your number one reason that your town exists is because of the mountains, then then it's a mountain town. Being Bozeman, you're like, well, yeah, there's that is a very outdoorsy town. Yeah. It also has a very large university that is a big attraction to there. There is a lot of industry there. Um, did people settle in Bozeman and did the economy grow because of the surrounding mountains? It's hard to say because all of a sudden you're like, well, there's a big time university. There's a lot of actually industry there outside of the mountains. Um, but did it start and is it central to it? So I'm like, yes, because it's surrounded by mountains. And most of the people that I know in Bozeman, obviously they're from our world, um, being outdoor world, they are mountain people. So you could define it as a mountain town, but it's like kind of almost maybe not but it does have a feel of a mountain town. To me, like a Denver, a Salt Lake City, they're not mountain towns. They are cities near the mountains. Um, you know, there's some crazy stats of like only 2% of the population of Salt Lake City has ever stepped foot in the Wasatch Mountains, like in the canyons themselves. Um, so you're like, well, no, it's a it's a city. It is something entirely different and the mountains are kind of peripheral to it. There are people that live there for the mountains and there are little hamlets that re- like an Alta and Snowbird that revolve around it, but it's not necessarily a mountain town by my completely arbitrary made-up definition. I don't know, man. I kind of like your definition. I mean, what what else are we going with? Totally. And like, there is something different, I think, when your economy, culture, and community is completely centered around the mountains. That's, to me, a mountain town. Man, you know I hate agreeing with you, but I, I got nothing. I, I'm I'm accepting your answer. I think it's a mic drop answer. But what would you say on Bozeman? What would, is it a mountain town or is it not? Because that is the gray area to me. I think it's perfect because I, I think it does really, it could tip slightly, like a slight shift would sort of push it in or out. But I think, you know, go back 10 years, Bozeman's 
definitely a mountain town. There's more industry and tech moving in and around it. I still think Bozeman is a mountain town, but based on your criteria, the next five to 10 years could actually move Bozeman out. And now we're just going to get hate mail. But, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know. I think, I think given Bozeman's geography, history, proximity to mountains, I don't actually know if Bozeman could really, it's really hard to imagine it moving out of the realm of like, it is no longer a mountain town. Yeah. But um, it's a great example or kind of the, um, like that's the crucible. And then everybody is kind of to the right of Bozeman or left of Bozeman, not politically speaking, but on our, yeah, on our criteria here. So, sorry, I don't know the history of Bozeman enough, but you know, you drive through, there's enough ranching, there's enough farming. You knew it was like a small town that was revolving, maybe not necessarily around the mountains. And that's where it is kind of an interesting gray area because, but like majority of people that are even moving there, if there's a tech industry moving there, they're moving there because of like it's an outdoorsy mountain-ish town. Yeah. Um, what when it would cross over to just a small city in the mountains? Uh, yeah, I I don't know. But like mountain towns definitely have just something a little different. And there's a different pressure on the people. There's a different like feel when it strictly revolves around the mountain. Mm-hmm. All right, one more mountain town question. This one is coming from Jen in LA, and Jen. Wants to know about mountain sex and more specifically, sex in a sleeping bag. And (laughs) what she wants to know is, are people like climbing into a single bag and, you know, making things happen, making the magic happen? Or does one like lay down a sleeping bag and then two people are kind of you know, sandwiched between two sleeping bags, sandwich being the operative term there. Cody, thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> Oof. It's always hard to talk about like relationships and sex when my wife is a very prominent <laughs> public individual and everyone knows exactly who she is. So, uh, but that being said, let's talk about my sex life. <laughs> From experience, Laying down and being on top is much better than being like two hamsters fighting in a wool sock because it can get pretty warm in there. Like it gets real warm if you're just like, I'd say the open zipped, um, the the laying down on top. You got to have the fly on your tent. That's for sure. You don't want, you know, you don't want to have other people peeping in on you if mm-hmm. you're in somewhat, you know, someone walks by your tent and whatnot. But uh, generally unzipped granted there's always been summer spring early fall winter i'm curious about but i'm also not because mainly i've never slept in the winter in a tent with my wife uh it's always been with like chris rubens mm, and so some no, saucy no stories yeah totally we have cuddled that is you, <laughs> you know sometimes you got to get to that point where you're like it's a bit cold maybe we should just kind of bump into each other and have our heat kind of together i will say The double sleeping bag, though, such a good resource. Mm. If you are comfortable with sleeping in a sleeping bag with somebody else, the double sleeping bag is the best weight saving and increase of warmth that you can have because you have two body heats 
collecting together yeah. to like warm up the inside of a bag. Of all people, Jim and Hill were very heavy. They'd have custom like North Face double sleeping bags huh. made and whatnot. And they would weigh like, you know, obviously more than one sleeping bag, but less than two sleeping bags. And I was always a little jealous of that being like, man, they got a, like a lightweight, super warm, don't have to have quite the insulation kind of setup. Um, Real, real, I would say if you do have a good partner that you like to go in the mountains with and you can sleep with them too. I don't think I could get away with it with my wife. I'd stir and toss yeah. and she is like a, the lightest sleeper and it would just create catastrophe and I'd probably be sleeping bare naked on the outside of the tent <laughs> just being like <laughs> freezing my ass off as she kicked me out of the double sleeping bag. But if you have that, invest in a double sleeping bag. They're They're pretty useful. Jonathan, your thoughts. Yeah. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of like sex and sleeping bags. You know what's better than sex in a sleeping bag is just sex almost anywhere else, in my humble opinion. So, yeah, going into the mound sex, do you like go behind a big boulder and go like in the middle of the sure. day? You're saying, yeah, yeah okay. virtually you're any- outdoors. Exactly. You would prefer the outdoors experience. That's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, if we're getting into really cold temperatures where it's like, yo, um, I need to be in this sleeping bag, then at that point, I'm probably just going to be like, you know, when I'm back home in whatever, a night or two nights max, like we'll just have sex back then. Totally. Yeah, there's nothing about winter camping that has ever made me think about like wanting to have sex because it is too, it's just, you're like, you're fighting for warmth at all times. And like just the even thought of stripping down even the littlest bit to do it or getting out of your sleeping bag to get into somebody else's sleeping bag. Just, you're just like, no man, all I'm trying to do is stay warm out here. And I'm trying to regulate my temperature as best as I can. If I'm getting sweaty, someone else's sleeping bag, then I'm going to have a miserable night (laughs) of sleep. I'm going to be all cold and clammy within 20 minutes after we get this thing done. So yeah, I could, it's, see just the the winter time aspects just maybe abstain it get back to the hotel room get back to your car get back to somewhere warm and celebrate in that sort of way because ultimately when you're winter camping you're kind of just fighting for survival and warmth uh the summer spring though yeah man like have at it that's what it's kind of fun feel like you're outdoors but you're not really you're in a tent you're away from things or you'll, apparently you'll just find me behind a big boulder. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> anyway, Jen, you sound fun. And I hope we answered your question. And good luck. Yeah. Good I luck. I actually don't know what the exact question was. I felt like she was just prodding us for stories to see if we've ever had sex in a sleeping bag. Maybe. Um, yeah. Spinoff podcast, uh, the, the Mountain Sex Fantasy Hour. Oof. Not me. <laughs> don't, I'm not a guest on there. Okay. <laughs> Uh, anyway, folks, uh, please continue to submit your Mountain Town questions. Apparently, Jen just opened up uh, Mountain Sex questions uh, for us here. And so uh, let's uh, let's see what you got. But thank you, Ryan and Jen, for those. I'm surprised we haven't got any like Mountain Town relationship. Things. I know. Like, that is kind of the most crucial aspects of Mountain Towns. And like, I remember being in my 20s and the, the like the navigation of oh. relationships in a Mountain Town. Those are the most complex things 
you can kind of bring up and the, the, the hardest things to figure out. So like I would say, if you're one of the hundred listeners out there and you have a relationship <laughs> issue, definitely come to us because uh, those are the ones that will like really, really grease our wheels. That's actually really true. I think we're both just at this point dying to get some <laughs> juicy mountain town relationship question ones. And we will absolutely discuss those on air and, um, and weigh in with great, great thoughtfulness. So, totally. um, yeah. Okay. Is it time for what we're reading and watching? Yeah, I believe so. Okay. What do you got? Haven't been watching much lately. I guess it's been a little bit of sports. It's been kind of crazy. You know, the 50 is about to launch. Yeah. So getting that all prepped is a mountain of work. So mainly been watching a lot of edits and uh-huh. providing a lot of feedback and whatnot. So uh, haven't been watching too much TV other than just the the Niners beating the piss out of the LA Rams last night. That was awesome. That was so great. That was um, not so great. I. Uh, by the way, I'm still mad at you. The fact that you didn't name Indy Debo still does not sit right with me at all. I know that guy is a just a so man good. among boys. Yep. Uh is unbelievable to watch him play. I'm just happy that he wasn't a free agent and fulfilled your dreams of going to the Bears. Oh my God. I would never that's all we would talk about on reviewing yeah. the news is how sad you are. I'd be like, Are you still really sad that Debo Samuel is now on the Chicago Bears? And I yes. would swear my Debo jersey for every one of these calls. And uh yeah. ugh, I can't stand that that didn't happen. I uh, know, but I'm still happy he's still on our team because he just can run through people like it's it's so fun to watch. It's yeah. amazing. So so but uh, getting to I just did go on a little vacation, um, went uh, for a little surf trip. Uh, first one kind of first real international flight of any kind in a couple of years. And then also doing it with a kid for my first time, which um, I'm here to report sucks. It's exactly <laughs> as you would imagine. Flying with a baby on a red eye yeah. actually was less bad than our flight home, which was started at three and got in at midnight. Um, you know, every kid is different and they're all going to have their own personalities. But I think uh, my kid is very chill. He rolls with the punches really well, but he's also very interested in things and stimulation and people. And so he did not want to sleep. And when you have a baby that is up for 20 hours, that creates hell. And I was I was in hell for quite an hour. And I, I want to apologize to anyone that was sitting next to us. I feel so bad, but just know I know that the pain inside my chest as your kid is like screaming into your ear and wriggling and kicking at you and you've been up for twenty-two hours straight is is much worse. So like wait I a think second. No, you don't get yeah. to make that decision for other people. The people sitting right behind you or in the rows next to you, you don't get to say that your pain was worse than their pain. Noise-canceling headphones are really good these days. They are. like, And everyone has them. Like you could look around and every single person had noise canceling headphones. So it's a lot different than 20 years ago when no one had headphones and you're on those little crappy ones to plug into the chair seat to try and watch the movie up front. So that's the one thing is saving grace. Like I've heard of people giving like earplugs and candy to notes to everyone around them, but you're like the earplugs, everyone's got them with, you know, fancy noise canceling headphones and even AirPods that are do it. So 
I, but just trust me when your kid is like, mm. cause the, the, the pressurization they're they're kicking they're screaming. They're just like in pain and they're miserable. Like it is, it's terrible. It's really, really terrible. So other than that, the trip was awesome. And I actually got to read some books mm. for the first time in a while. I tried to unplug. I couldn't really, but, um, I read two books while down there. I went with as, uh, Listeners of this uh, podcast will know I'm really into spy stuff. I think I've accused people of being spies on this yep. podcast yes, once or, once before. But The Triple Agent by Joby Warwick, um, which was about, which was a really sad account of uh, seven CIA officers um, being killed in a, a suicide bombing. And it was about a triple agent, essentially an agent that was a double agent that that became an agent, triple agent and infiltrated and blew himself up. Um, so it's all the story that goes into that. Um, the biggest takeaway for me, which was really fascinating, and I the, the lessons that you learn from it and what they're trying to like say what happened, what led to them was like the the analysis of risk that we do in the mountains is the exact same that like the CIA does in these sort of analysis, mm. like the heuristic traps that we have in the mountains were the exact same. And it was like kind of interesting. It made me, I'm like, not like go to the CIA and be like, Hey guys, you should like listen to mountain athletes. They're like these heuristics huh. that you fell into are the exact heuristics that we fall into. There was commitment factors. There was the expert analysis. There was communication errors. And it was like, this is literally what we try to do on a daily basis in the mountains. So it was interesting to see a job that is inherently risky and obviously cost a lot of people their lives. And some of the, the factors that led up to it and how, to me, it was interesting that risk and risk analysis is so universal. Um, you know, social heuristics that we have in the mountains are the same social heuristics because they're human characteristics that lead to these these events in other walks of life. So um, that was a pretty interesting book. I like that kind of stuff. And then I read the the Dog Stars by mm. Peter Heller. Um, have you read that? No. And this book okay. was just recommended to me Saturday night. I've never heard of it. And so this is an interesting coincidence. So yeah, just yeah. a couple days later, you're bringing it up. So say more. Um, it's in The Walk of the Road by Cormac McCarthy. So it's a po post-apocalyptic huh. um, book. Kind of fitting because it has to do with a catastrophic flu that wipes out 98% of the population. So uh -huh. like, um, but same sort of kind of feel. Even so much, my one critique of it was that the writing was really good um, in many ways. But one of my critiques of it was like it kind of felt like he was trying to copy Cormac McCarthy's style. And yeah, like a little bit, I was like, you know how like one of the main things to celebrate about Cormac McCarthy as much as what he writes is what he doesn't write. The space in between his words, the space in between <clears throat> the sentences that almost create more imagination in your mind. Like he has such a way to draw this amazing picture in your own mind and fire up your mind's eye without saying that much. I think he's, he's a genius for that. And so Peter Heller, he kind of was trying to do that style in certain ways and it sort of worked and it sort of didn't because when you notice it being like, Oh, you just cut that sentence off awkwardly short. Like that was kind of weird. Why did you do that? Um, some of the writing where he doesn't do that, I think is brilliant. And I'd overall say the book is really good. Like mm -hmm. it is a worthwhile read. Um, my small critique of it is just because I 
infatuated with Cormac McCarthy. I think yeah. he's an uh, author of many of my favorite books of all time. So it almost felt that it was like Cormac light, but overall it's still really good story. Um, it does make you think, and it does bring up some really interesting thoughts. So uh, pretty easy read in many ways. Um, and I, I'd rate it a eight out of 10. Eight out of 10. Okay, but it does not raise to the 10 out of 10 level, which automatically triggers that I have to watch or read whatever it is you're talking yes. about. Okay. It is not a 10 out of 10 for sure. Okay. Like Cormac McCarthy, The Road, 10 out of 10. That is uh, 100% have to read. I don't recall. How much have you and I talked about Cormac? Probably not, not enough. So you don't know my... Do you know that I once effectively spent a Christmas Eve with Cormac. Wow. It was the single greatest conversation of my life. Full, not imagine. exagteration. And uh, really, because I could, ima- I could also imagine it actually being one of the worst conversations totally. of your life. That's right. Totally. It, like it I was, just... it was going to go one way or the other. That might warrant its own. Uh, we're not going to do that right now, but swear to you, like present company excluded Cody and not counting, you know, every one of our 10 out of 10 conversations that we have. I can actually say if people are like, what's the best conversation you ever had? It was Christmas Eve with Cormac McCarthy in New Mexico. And it was mind blowing. And we talked, (laughs) this is all I'll say. We talked about Ludwig Wittgenstein we talked about Beethoven and Mozart. We talked, I, I corrected him on Martin Heidegger. We talked about film. He was super curious about Blister, which I couldn't believe. And you're, you're exactly right when thinking that could have been like maybe the worst conversation of your life. He's not exactly known to be the most gregarious soul. And it was stunning. So maybe at some point I'll, I'll say more about that story. Yeah. That sounds like a conversation I could not keep up with. <laughs> just what you were talking about. I'd be like, yeah, I'd want to talk to him. And then you just, what you just talked about those topics. I'd be like, oh, shit. <laughs> well, I am way out of my league. No, nah, he would, he would have, um, I think I can safely say, I think if, if we did not start with all this kind of highbrow stuff, and that is not the way my understanding is with him to get into a good conversation, but yeah. I think if I think he would be fascinated with like if he was like, what do you do? And like, you're like, I spend a lot of time in the mountains doing stuff that I think he would be very interested in. But um, yeah, you know, if you ever bump into him, that's my advice. Just go talk about climbing around in the mountains and you, yeah. you'll probably be off and on your way. So what have you been reading, mm. watching? Terrible to say not reading that much. I've been reading the Blister Buyer's Guide, uh, which we got out of our lives. It's wonderful. You all should read it. But um, that's that's what was occupying a lot of my reading time. What I am so happy to report is that I started re-watching The Bear, the 10 out of 10 show that you do have to watch. It yes. is even better the second time around. It is still definitely my favorite thing Other than the video I sent you today, that's actually my favorite thing of the Bears fan in an actual bear costume. Crying. Crying. Every word of that video is the funniest thing ever. Every single word. It's not scripted as far as I can tell. I guess this was a real moment captured, and that's actually my favorite thing. It also has to do with the Bears, but the show, The Bear... Uh, about a cook and a restaurant 
a sandwich shop in Chicago. Um, I'm rewatching it and it's phenomenal. And I've already talked about it. And every single person listening to this seriously needs to watch The Bear, including you, Cody. Yep. Nope, it's it's on the list as soon as I get some time and I got to sign up for Hulu. Like, I'm literally going to sign up for Hulu just to watch that. That's, I know how much it, and I just, it's up my avenue um, when it comes to cooking and as an Anthony Bourdain freak myself and yeah. just like all that kind of stuff. And yeah, now I, I do still have to watch that. So right. it's good that it's so good on the second time. Yeah. And by the way, Luke Coppa, who often comes in and gives us notes on our reviewing the news episodes. Luke does not tend to talk in such strong language as this. He's a pretty mellow guy. But there's a note in our doc from Luke that just says, you guys should be watching Welcome to Rexham, Rexham on Hulu. I don't know I, what this show is. Do you? No. It feels like a soccer show. It I does. I don't know why. It Welcome does, to like, Rexham. It's got to be Rexham. pronounced Rexham, right? Yeah, W-R-E-X-H-A-M. Yeah. Like anything with a ham at the end of it feels like it's some soccer <laughs> mm, team. Wrexham, <laughs> right. Yeah, Wrexham. Um, I, yeah, I have I, no idea, but Luke, sure. <laughs> Luke, Luke's, Luke's coming strong on this one. We should be watching this. Like we're failing at life by virtue of not watching this. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. Anyone, feel free to chime in if you agree with Luke or tell us something about Welcome to Wrexham and maybe you'll get us to watch it. I don't know. Yeah. That's all I Otherwise, got. Yeah, that's all I got too. Okay. Reading little books, watching the 50. 50 comes out on Wednesday, so. Yeah, what should we know? First episode. First episode is the Comstock Cooler. So this season, which is very much based in British Columbia, where we were recording pods for a long time, um, started off really, really difficult and really slow. It's really hard to capture that in a 20-minute episode of the months of waiting that goes into a line. But uh, we start off with uh, one of the more difficult lines out there. Difficult because it's just really deep and there's a lot of complex train to get through. And we hope to kind of show people exactly why it is is difficult. Um, and yeah, that's the, the first episode. And then every other week from here until like January, we have wow. episodes come out. So um, we've got a few episodes. We've got three more episodes in the bag that are already wrapped and ready. Um, they're scheduled up and then still working on the rest of the season with some really complex editing going forward. Huh? Interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So do you, when do you, you, do you have like, do you try to drop episodes at a specific time or just a specific day? I was doing it. I used to do it at 5 a.m. Um, just for no other reason that I was just up kind of when I woke up and that it was just automatically there. But then I've like um, our new editor um, in the past, I've worked with multiple different editors. And then I found this editor, um, Lou um, Whistler, and she's an amazing editor. And huh. she I don't know if you you can kind of see it in the way our editing style um, goes that she when she took over midway mm -hmm. through the season last year. Um, and she's really, really good at analytics and so she's like you need to be releasing at noon you need to be in, uh, like all these times and so i've slowly pushed it up it's launching at 8 a.m pacific time um so um right now we're launching at 8 a.m um i just like it the first thing um we have such rabid fans that they kind of like a want it right first thing in the morning yeah. so so I, I i i 
pushing back. I'm like, well, not noon, but let's keep it around 8 a.m., you know, because we do have a decent sized European audience. So they're off work and can still watch it at that time and night. But then it's like first thing in the morning for everyone else here on the West Coast. So, so yeah, that's kind of uh, Wednesdays. I don't know why it became Wednesdays. It just like everything. It's so funny when I look back at this show and like so <laughs> many decisions were just made hastily on the fly. Like I had no idea what I was doing. And I was like, oh, just Wednesdays. Okay. Like didn't look at analytics and be like, actually Mondays are the most active when you're, when audience is on YouTube. And I'm like, okay, I should have done that as opposed to Wednesdays, but here I am stuck on Wednesdays now because it seems like a tradition. Yep. Well, that's cool. That's a fun, I know it's really fun too, just for how many people it's a thing and they're stoked. And, uh, so look at you bringing joy into so many of our lives by virtue of getting to watch you suffer. Yes. Yeah. I'm all for it. I will say we, little less suffering this year than normal, Mm. though we do have some good suffering. More powder skiing this year. That's right. It's like we actually got some good powder skiing. So like the trailer, people are like, what was that? That was good snow. What are you guys doing? That's not the 50. So um, yeah. Also, I, I will plug that Solomon QST um, the quality ski time tour they're yeah. doing. Um, look into that because we're showing uh, an episode that's not going to be released for another two months on that tour huh. um, for the next month. So if the QS if the QST tour comes through your town, um, you can watch a preview 50 episode far before it comes out. It's rolling through Crested Butte. Perfect. I know. It's going to be fun to see some folks at that. Totally. Um, okay. So less suffering, more powder skiing. Is there going to be more mountain sex this year? Uh, the exact, I'd say 10 times more mountain sex, (laughs) 10 times, maybe a hundred times more because you know, like the little bit of math I do know, and I'm terrible at math is you, you, when you multiply by, when you multiply zero, you still get zero. So still at zero. So here's, we've been talking about marketing a little bit in this conversation. Here's, here's a tip. What if every episode was just, you know, whatever the typical, like, you know, Denali and mountain sex, you just (laughs) tack on and mountain sex. And, uh, you said Lou is into analytics. I am going to make a prediction that this will help your overall views. Just go with the most clickbaity headlines yes. you could possibly do. Yeah. You'll never believe what happens in the tent <laughs> and eight minutes in. <laughs> but spoiler alert, it's mountain sex. <laughs> <laughs> Mount parentheses, mountain sex. Um, well, Just, it's a free tip. I'm here to help. Okay. Thanks. Um, hey, man, thank you. We covered the gamut once again. Always appreciate working through some of these topics with you. And uh, so good to see you. Thanks for doing it. And uh, yeah, everybody, new 50. Yeah. Pretty good. Good good run. So cool, Jonathan. All right. Good to review the news with you. (laughs) All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from the entire crew here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again over on our Crafted podcast, where we have a phenomenal conversation with our very own Paul Forward. 
where we are launching a thing called Amateur Hour. And turns out Paul isn't really an amateur. I'm not sure if he's an amateur at, at anything in life. He might simply be the most interesting man in the world. But it is a fantastic conversation, and you do not want to miss it. And so we'll talk to you over on Crafted. Take care, everybody.